Nehemiah chapter 6, and our reading will begin at verse 1. Would you stand with me now out of respect for the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word? Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Then Sinbalat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let's meet together at Hepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning harm to me. So I sent messengers saying, I'm doing great work and I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Well, they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It's reported, Among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're building the wall. You are to be their king, according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you a king. That will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let's counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things you're saying have not been done. You're inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they'll become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I may become frightened and act accordingly in sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to the works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies had heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Well, I remind us here this morning that we have been preaching what we have called a, a mini-series. A mini-series, and the title of this mini-series is Restoring Glory. And we've called it Restoring Glory because that's exactly the meaning of the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem. The very concrete and bricks and mortar and wall of Jerusalem was a symbolic testimony of the glory of God in Zion. And so as we've worked our way through this narrative portion of Nehemiah, where we've read the testimony of the rebuilding of the wall, we've called it 
restoring glory, and yet we've noticed that with each chapter as this testimony unfolds, the, the idea or the theme of restoring glory has been unfolded with something specific in the text which add nuance and flavor and coloring to the broader idea of restoring glory. So we saw uh, committed labor in chapter 3. And then we examined the theme of the church militant in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we examined uh, united in brotherhood as we saw the people of God uh, finally pulling together after a season of sinning against each other and disrupting the work. And now today, um, we come to the end of of this mini-series on restoring glory, and we're going to call it Mission Accomplished. Because that's, uh, in reality, what we read about here in our text in verse 15. It says, the wall was completed. Mission accomplished. The wall was completed. And as we begin to take note of the timing of the completion of the wall, we can see that it was completed with lightning quick speed in 52 days. You remember the whole reason for why Nehemiah is in Jerusalem is so that he might rebuild those ruined walls for the welfare of the people of God and for the glory of the Lord. And inspired by his sense of mission and dedicated to promoting the glory of God, this man has led a team of 41 construction crews over the course of 52 days to do what had not been accomplished in Israel in over almost 100 years. And that is to raise up the wall that was ruined and brought down by the evil kingdom of Babylon. And so today, as we turn to our text, we think about this idea of mission accomplished. And the thing that adds even more nuance to the idea of mission accomplished is what you read in verse 16 when it says that when all the enemies and all of the nations took note of the completion of the project of the rebuilt walls, they said they've done it with the help of God. They've done it with the help of God. And it's precisely from this angle of mission accomplished that we want to think about restoring glory with an added nuance and the idea that the mission had been accomplished by the very work of God. And so what we want to do this morning is ask ourselves, what does it all mean? As you take all of these pieces and moving parts of our text and we think about something that was written 2,500 years ago and we sit here in the 21st century with all of our troubles and all of our trials and all of our difficulties, we say, what in the world is this about to me today? And I would submit to you that what we take from our text is a little bit of instruction and a little bit of motivation. A little bit of instruction and a little bit of motivation. Because if we can draw up the principles of our passage this morning, I think the main message that gets driven home to us is that we can perform work in this world for the glory of God by His help. We can perform meaningful work in this world for the glory of God with His help. That's instruction. But hopefully more than that, it's motivation. Hopefully it's motivation as we think about the call God has upon our life and the various uh, spheres and vocations He's called us to serve Him. We get to rise up today after hearing from God and go serve Him and glorify His name with His help.
So let's take that main idea and we'll break it down to a couple of parts. The recognition of God's help and then the testimony of God's help. I want to begin, first of all, with the recognition of the help. And interestingly here, basically what we're doing is we're going to the very last verse in our text, which we have read this morning. We're going to work backwards from here. But, but I come uh, to this point, I, I leapfrog over the prior 15 verses to arrive at verse 16 and think of that first of all with us because uh, it follows immediately upon the testimony of Nehemiah that the wall had been rebuilt. And the thing that we notice here is that no sooner has the wall been rebuilt than the nations, the very enemies of the project, assess it. And Nehemiah gives us their assessment and he interprets it for us through the eyes of faith. And first of all, we'll note that this recognition is international. The recognition is international. And I take that from the two phrases which are combined together from the conjunction and. All our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it. Well, when we think of the enemies, we think, first of all, of these uh, opponents of Nehemiah, of, of Sanballat, and of, of Tobiah, and of Geshem. The, these were the people who are the proverbial uh, black crows sitting upon the power lines, uh, providing overwatch to what's going on below and providing commentary, Right? And what they said is they saw Nehemiah strolling into town with his armed Persian guards and the retinue of royal soldiers is that they recognized something about him immediately. They perceived something about him immediately, which that he was there for the good of the people of God and to seek their welfare. And we are told that made them angry. These are enemies of Christ. These are enemies of the rebuilding. These are enemies of Nehemiah. And then we learned about them in chapter 4 that when they heard the wall progress, that the wall rebuilding was making progress, that they got angry. And out of their anger erupted intense mockery and insulting in a campaign of shame. And from there it exploded and mushroomed into the threat of, of armed opposition as they gathered their armies in the plains surrounding Jerusalem and threatened the military conquest of Jerusalem. Those are the enemies. But when we think about the enemies, then we remember that each of one of those enemies represents a nation. And we saw that back in chapter 4. That uh, Sinbala and Tobiah were Samaritans and they were in the north. And uh, Geshe was in the south. And, and uh, Tobiah was of the Ammonites and that country was to the east. And then we found out that the, the Ashdodites had also thrown their law in with the rebels. And so it's interesting as the word of God shows us here, uh, the enemies are, are gathered around Jerusalem and they are plotted on all four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And when we read about the nations, now in verse 16, in conjunction with the enemies, we know exactly who Nehemiah is speaking of. Those nations, and perhaps even more, we are told, recognized it. And the thing about it that's so interesting is that the recognition is coerced. That's the second thing we want to see, is the recognition was coerced. In other words, they were forced to know it and to acknowledge it and to accept it. 
Notice here in verse 16, it says, When they had heard and all the nations saw, uh, they lost their confidence for they recognized. They recognized. And, you know, that word is yada. It means no. They knew something. From the observance of the fact of the completed project, we are told that they knew something. And the thing that they knew here, it's very important, is that it was God who helped them rebuild the wall. Now, what's interesting to us here this morning, and you may see it already if you have a different translation than I do, which is the New American Standard translation, is that there's no word for help in the text. There's no Hebrew verb here in the text for help. The, the verb in the text is a passive form verb, and it means accomplished. It means accomplished, and it, it signifies to us that this work is something like an object that was acted upon by outside force. So the rebuilding of the walls is, is presented as if it were an object that got acted upon. The rubble and the pile of stones that had to be reshaped into a nine-foot-thick wall was a project that had to be acted upon, and the very formation of the grammar says that it was God who did it. And so as the nations look around and they see the completed walls and no more uh, stone lying in ruin, they made a conclusion from it all. Now, it's quite interesting to us because as we've already seen, there were no less than, than 41 construction crews. We've seen that uh, the construction crews were made of priests and skilled laborers and, and farmers and some women and, and some merchants and skilled tradesmen and all kinds of people. Of course, headed all up by, by Nehemiah. But, but when, when the nations are recorded here, when we're receiving their testimony through the filter of Nehemiah, what's interesting to us is that Nehemiah said when they looked at it all, they knew it wasn't Nehemiah, they knew it wasn't Judah, they knew it wasn't the people of God. What they knew is that all of it was a work of God. That's striking to us. In fact, uh, Nehemiah says... Our God. Which is a very partisan religious way to say things. It's also an insight into the fact that these people understood that the opposition to the rebuilding of the walls wasn't a political matter. It wasn't a personality difference between them and Nehemiah. It wasn't even a sibling rivalry among the surrounding nations. It, it wasn't a battle over political turf. No, they perceived by the very way this is framed here that this was a religious battle and what they perceived was their false gods lost. And the Lord had won. He had accomplished His will. The bottom line here, people of God, is that the enemies of Christ were forced to acknowledge that God won. Notice the coercion here. When all our enemies heard of it, our text says they lost their confidence. Now, I wonder if your Bible's like mine at this point. Mine has a, a number one right next to the word lost. And that tells me that there's a text note. And you know, the text note gets it pretty close, fell exceedingly in their own eyes. 
In other words, the text doesn't say anything about confidence. Uh, what the text says is that they fell in their own estimate. That's what the text says. The text says that when they looked at themselves in the mirror, this is a self-reflective comment here, when they looked at themselves in the mirror, they saw a capital L on their forehead for loser. That's what it's saying. They estimated themselves as having been vanquished and, and having been crushed. And what was it that crushed them? The four tells you, for they recognized this work had been accomplished by God. You see, they understood themselves to have been defeated. They understood what they were in that moment. You see, I've never really met somebody that's truly self-loathing. Unless they're being forced to be that. Because most of us will deny up to the last moment possible that everything's still okay. Most people will say, it's situation normal here, I'm good. Right up until the moment when they are forced by the entirety of the situation to admit they lost. And what's more is that losing is a reflection upon them. That they're weak, that they're despicable, that they're puny, that they're ineffectual. Can't help but see and hear the testimony of Scripture about the idolater and the person who refuses to acknowledge the Lord. You see, the Bible says the fool said in his heart, there's no God, and that's the way he walks around. He walks around with his, his chest thrust out, full of himself and the haughtiness of life, all the while knowing it's, an, it's a complete lie. Because the Word of God says that even the unbeliever knows God, even though he refuses to acknowledge God, and the reason why he doesn't know God is because he spends all his time pretending there isn't a God. Why? Because the minute that he begins to consciously admit that there is a God, he quivers in fear before the holiness of the Lord. And that's the image we get here finally. The mask has been ripped off and self-consciousness has descended upon them and they understood who they were. They were defeated enemies of Jesus Christ. I am struck by the transparency of Nehemiah as he speaks of these enemies of the rebuilding project. They spent all their days and nights plotting and scheming. We're going to show you some of the plots and schemes. They spent all of their time thinking about how they could do this and pull this off to defeat Nehemiah. And now, after all of their attempts at discouragement, they have been reduced to failure. And one of the things I draw from that this morning, people of God, is it worked for our own encouragement. It's a word for our own encouragement because so often if we think about why we are failing, if we think about our problems in the Christian life, if we think about the obstacles which are before us, if we think about the power of our own sin and the difficulty that we have in fighting against it, we become discouraged. 
And we see the enemy and the opposition as large in our mind, as constantly stopping and thwarting us from getting where we want to go in life. And we could spend so much time focusing on the power of darkness and our own weakness that we forget something. That the kingdom of darkness is a defeated kingdom. It is a defeated kingdom. You see, they spent their time trying to demoralize the workers, and they actually did, according to Nehemiah's testimony. And here we find is they're demoralized. Reminds us this morning, people of God, that we don't measure our calling by our success. We measure our calling by our duty. We don't measure our calling by our success or anticipated success. We measure our calling by our call to duty. And second of all, we don't need to underestimate that our spiritual enemies know the power of God. One of the things that I find so deeply encouraging and consoling and comforting here is that the testimony of the power of God and His might pierced through all of the layers of spiritual callousness in their heart. And it penetrated into the depths of the souls of these enemies and they knew something. That they were a conquered foe. That's who you do battle with. They may be stubborn... They may be foolish, but they are defeated. And we never need to forget that as we take up our service for Jesus Christ, because if we don't, we will spend more time focusing on the potential peril of failure than the fact that conquest is ours and the victory is Christ's. We have the recognition of the nations that this has all been done with the help of God. And now we see the testimony of divine help. And we're going to work our way now from the beginning of our text. And I think it's very interesting here because what Nehemiah does is he lists a whole series of attempts which were designed to thwart the rebuilding of the wall. And I'm going to say that the best way to interpret all that you read here in this series of of testimonies is to see them through the lens of verse 18. Remember, verse 18 says the way that Nehemiah accomplished all this was with the help of God. And what we're going to see here is a series of three testimonies about how God helped Nehemiah in order that he may lead the people in the rebuilding of the wall. And the very first help that we see here is that it was through the intended physical harm. Look at verse 2. When they had heard about the uh, walls being nearly rebuilt, notice here that Symbolot and Geshem sent out a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together. Come, let us meet together at Shepharim and the plain of Ono. But they were intending me harm. Notice here that the enemies of Nehemiah, Symbolot, and Geshem at this particular juncture invite him to a peace summit. And it was located in the northwest corner of the land of Judah. In other words, the place where they had planned for him to go, Shepharim in the plain of Ono, was about as far as you could travel without stepping foot into a foreign country. It would have been at least a day's walk for him just to get there. And so the point of it all was distraction. They understood that the wall was almost done. But what they are doing is seeking to distract Nehemiah. And they couch the invitation in the most flowery of terms. Let's let's meet together. Let's have a summit together. 
You see, they feign neighborliness. They pretend that they've accepted as a, as a fait accomplished that the wall is now up. And now, well, because Nehemiah has outsmarted them and outmaneuvered them, they just want to know uh, how to have peace with Nehemiah. As if he's been the aggressor, by the way. But Nehemiah's assessment uh, is penetrating and spot on because he says at the end of verse 2, but they were planning to harm me. And the word plot means to, uh, plan means to plot in great detail. Harm is literally the word evil. And well, we know what it was. They intended to kill him. So the whole point of pretending they're inviting him to a, a seaside five-star resort for a peace summit, uh, just a, a time of negotiated diplomacy, was really rather a thinly veiled fl- uh, plot uh, where they planned to ambush and kill him. And Nehemiah is, res- is very perceptive as he says to them, but they intended to plan harm to me. And so his uh, response is full of perceptiveness and cleverness in verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. <laughs> he plays possum, doesn't he? See, instead of saying, oh, I- you want to you wanna swoop me up and, and put my head on a pike somewhere and kill me. I know what you're up to. But he, he plays like he doesn't know any of it. He keeps all the cards next to his chest. And, and the way he responds to them is just brilliant. He says, you know what? Uh, I, I'm doing a great work here. Why should I stop? This is the brilliance of his answer and the way he treated them. He says, I'm doing a great work. And the reality is, it was a great work. He was there by the direct interposition of the hand of God. He, he had been nothing but a servant and, and a cupbearer to the king of Persia a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. The only reason why he's here is because he fell before the king and he said, the tombs of my fathers are unprotected. The walls are torn down. Its gates are burned with fire. How could I not be in anything but distress and sadness? And so he was here to restore those walls and to remove their reproach. It was a great work. And he says, I don't have time. But I want you to notice how Nehemiah was protected and helped by the hand of God. Remember, I'm walking you through a series of of stories here of incidents where real harm was planned against him, which if it had ever been executed, the wall would have stopped. The enemies would have won. And in this very first attempt, we're told that the plan of the enemies was to, to ambush him so they could kill him, and Nehemiah's response was utterly deft. And it's critical to think about because most people in Nehemiah's position after they've been harassed and mocked and ridiculed and shamed wouldn't mind a little bit of love from the locals, right? Who wouldn't want to uh, be uh, invited to a five-star resort and to be treated like a king? 
And all of the local dignitaries come by and kiss your ring and tell you how much they want peace with you. But he saw through all of it. And the reason why he saw through all of it, because of the four months he was on his knees in prayer before the Lord. You have to read the help that Nehemiah sees here by his divine enabling to to, uh, penetrate through the deceitful plan through the lens of chapter 1. Well, remember we're told that he sat and he fasted and he prayed and he cried out to the God of heaven until it was made clear to him and to all of his band of prayer warriors that he'd been called to lead this work. You see, the help of God to Nehemiah was to impress upon Nehemiah who he was. The help of God to Nehemiah was to impress upon Nehemiah who he was. He was just a servant of Jesus Christ. He wasn't a dignitary. He wasn't a political rock star. He wasn't somebody who got a position in government so he could use it to leverage it for his own success in life. He had been appointed to be the governor of Judah for one reason, that he might go there and serve Christ. And the other thing that he knew was not just who he was, but what he was supposed to do with it. What he knew was what he was supposed to do with it. And the thing that he was supposed to do with this calling to be a servant of Christ as the governor of Jerusalem was to go lead the people of God to rebuild the wall and to take away its reproach. Well, I know that's a 2,500-year-old story, but it seems to me the testimony rings loud and true to us today. It speaks straight across the centuries and even the millennia to us today. The way to receive the help of God in order that we may make our stand and serve Christ right now is to know who we are and what we've been called to. The way to avoid the snares and traps and temptations of sin is to not lead an aimless life. One of the worst things that people can do is walk around adrift and without aim and without a sense of purpose and without an internalized sense of identity that comes straight from God in Christ. Because you see, if I don't know who I am and what I'm here to do, I'll try anything at least once. And that's the life of a fool. That's the life of a fool. Because what that does is it leads you into all kinds of snares and temptations and trials and problems that are so large they will swallow you alive. Nehemiah knew how to read the situation because he knew who God was and what God had called him to be and his call upon his life. People of God, let's be sure that we've spent our time in prayer before the Lord asking him to give us a sense of who we are. That we are servants of Christ and that we have a mission for him in this world. That's the first line of help. The second is help through efforts to discourage. I want you to notice here in verse 5, it's clear that Sinbalat and Geshem repeatedly tried this. We're told four different times in verse 5. And now I want you to notice how they shifted tactics now in verse 5. Sinbalat sent his servant to in the same manner a fifth time, now with an open letter in his hand. 
Well, uh, they realized finally they got outsmarted uh, by, uh, by Nehemiah. They, uh, there's a little bit of uh, Sergeant Schultz in them, if you know the old story of Hogan's Heroes. They finally realized they got outwitted. And so now they send uh, this new letter, which is an open letter, which means basically that it is a letter that is um, going to be posted up in the town square to Nehemiah, but for everybody to read. Uh, This is like um, uh, putting somebody on blast on social media. Oh, I'm just posting this for you, but making sure that everybody out there who's on social media can see it. That's what he's done here. It's an open letter. And the point of the open letter is to undermine him and notice the charges that are in this letter. It's reported among the nations and Geshbu, whoever this is, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall. Notice the first charge that is brought up here. That Nehemiah is planning to rebel against the king of Persia. And the proof of it is that he is rebuilding the ruined walls of Jerusalem. Now, that's the kind of talk that can get you killed. Because it turns out that Persian kings don't like to hear about their subjects and governors rebelling. King Artaxerxes' reign had already uh, endured a whole series of rebellions throughout his empire. And believe me, he was in no mood for it now. And so here we have in this uh, social media post, if you will... These uh, enemies of Nehemiah saying, the very fact that you're rebuilding the wall is the proof that you're seeking to rebel. And then second of all, they say it's also been indicated by reports that you're seeking to be their king. Now I want you to notice how they sought to reinforce it all, right? And to make it credible. And this is always what you get in fake news, right? According to reports. Anonymous sources. The entire news media is full of this garbage to this day. Because it supposedly gives it a ring of credibility that someone's seeing. And if people are saying it, I'm just putting it on record so you know, this is what the people are, you should be aware of what's being said about you. And worse yet, he says in verse 7, that he's appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim him as a king. Nehemiah putting his right hand on their fair little heads and and commissioning them to go about town and to go about the countryside and prophesy that that Nehemiah is the the uh, the resurrection if you will of the Davidic kingship and the fact that it's all just a bunch of hot air is indicated by the attempted blackmail in the last part of verse 7 It'll be reported to the king according to these reports. So, let's take counsel together. You know what? If you're holding five aces, you're not saying anything about, let's go to a council together. This is all uh, hype, and they know it is. There isn't even a ring of truth to it. Nehemiah is there under the orders of the king. But the entire point of it all is to discourage. And so Nehemiah immediately uh, responds by saying that all of it has invented and all of it has been made up. But here is the thing. Nehemiah gets into the heart of the problem. 
verse 9, for all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. Notice this is a psychological operation and the entire point of it is to get people to become so discouraged and so frightened and so afraid that that maybe the king will send some troops down there and put a sword to their neck that they'll stop. It's really rather strange and kind of silly and and incredulous. After all, the wall's been rebuilt. It shows us their desperation and their stubbornness and their dogged determination to oppose Christ at any and every measure. But the thing that I think is really the story here again, and remember we're going through the details to say this is how the Lord has helped. This is how Nehemiah under Christ was successful, is the very last words of verse 9. But now, O God, strengthen my hand. I'll, I'll bet it's a sweet in your Bible as it is in mine again. The words, oh God, are in italics, right? You know why? Because they're not in the text. Nehemiah is not saying this to himself out loud. Come on, Nehemiah, strengthen my hands. He's not saying this to the enemies. And so the only logical conclusion is that Nehemiah is saying this to God. He's praying to God. And it is counter to the very intention of the people who were seeking to stop the work. You know how we know that? Because the word here in verse 9, they will become discouraged, means literally they will drop their hands. That's the intention of all this propaganda campaign through the open letter. Nehemiah says, this is what they were saying. This was their aim. That the people who were on the construction crews, on the scaffolds, on the wall, that they will drop their hands. In other words, they'll become so discouraged that they'll stop the work. And the design of it all is not simply that their hands won't be engaged. The design of it all was to penetrate the heart with fear so that they'd stop the work. So what does Nehemiah pray? God put strength in my hands. That kind of sounds like a strange prayer if you think about it. But the point of it is to say it's not the hands. That's just the external symbol. You see, the the hands that are busy at work and energetically serving God, that's just the externality. That's just what's outside. What gets you to wake up in the morning when you don't want to go to work? How many times have you sat in bed all night and not be able to sleep a week? And then you got to get up and go to work. You sit there and say, well, maybe I can call in sick today. And you realize I used up all my sick days. Or I don't have them. <laughs> what makes you go to work? What makes you go to work when you don't like the customers? What makes you go to work when you don't like the people you work around? What makes you go to work when you don't like the salary you get? Well, I'll guarantee you it's not the paycheck because it's not enough. 
There's not enough money to pay you to stand in the blazing hot sun for hours on end to do a job you don't like. What gets you to work is because of the heart. It's because you know that's the thing that Jesus Christ called you to do today. There's no other reason to go. That's exactly what Nehemiah is praying for here as he cries out to the Lord. He's not saying, make my hands physically strong. They already are. What he wants is to go do the work of God with his whole soul engaged. Because the way he works with the commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ will send a message to everyone on every construction crew in town. They'll all join him in the labor. But you know, people of God, this is a great prayer request for us. This is a great prayer request for a mother who can't take another sleepless night because the babies cry. This is a great prayer request for the housewife who can't deal with another day of overwhelming work around the house. This is a great request for somebody who's got more paperwork piled up on their desk than they can ever imagine to get done. This is for the person who has a phone that won't stop ringing. This is for somebody who feels like the demands of the job are beyond them and exceed their qualifications and their ability. What Nehemiah shows us here is how God strengthens us to serve for His glory. How He gives you the help to do what He's called you to do. And Nehemiah doesn't have a long, flowery, extended prayer. He does what is prudent and sensible. In that moment, he simply cries out, God, strengthen my hands. That'll be enough. Make that your prayer. I think all of us can remember that. We don't even need to put it on a little note card to try to memorize it. We've all got it. Strengthen my hands. Notice the last attempt here. And it shows us another way in which God was helped to Nehemiah and helped to the whole people of God. And that is uh, through attempts to frighten. Look at verse 10. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you at night or tonight. <laughs> who is this Shemaiah? Most scholars think that he was a priest but also seemed to have a prophetic gift or thought he had a prophetic gift. And for whatever reason, he's confined to his home. There's not a lot of information in the text about that. It just seems like that's the situation. And he has called Nehemiah to his house. In other words, he has just put Nehemiah on public display. And I guess because he's an important religious person that Nehemiah responded to him, okay? But the fact of the matter is, when Nehemiah walks up to his front door and knocks on it, you can be sure that everybody in town also knew. Because an important man like Nehemiah, going to visit an important man like Shemaiah, well, that causes people to talk. And so that was the point of it all. It was to set up a trap for Nehemiah, a public sort of... Uh, witness 
uh, framework was set up here that everybody in town knew that he went to Shemaiah. So whatever he does following upon that would indicate that he has come to Shemaiah to receive his counsel. Now notice Shemaiah's counsel here. Shemaiah's counsel is let's go into the temple and close the doors. You see what Shemaiah counsels is that Nehemiah break the law of God. Let's remember here, Nehemiah is not a priest. The furthest he can go in the, in the, the temple uh, apparatus is the outer court. He's not allowed behind the doors and behind the walls into the, to the holy place. And that's what the priest is saying. Come to me and we'll go stand here in the inner walls. And the reason why you need to do that is because they are coming to kill you. Well, you see, you can smell a rat here, can't you? You can smell a rat. Why can you smell a rat? Because the law of God says if they don't speak according to the law and the prophets, it's because there's no light in them. If a man purported to be a prophet and counseled somebody to do a, uh, uh, something against the law, it showed they were a false prophet. And Nehemiah perceives that, and he rejects the counsel. And I want you to notice how he does it, because it underlines two things about Nehemiah that are crucial for us to understand and that are helpful for us to apply. And the first is pride, and the second is shame, or humility. The first is pride, and the second is humility. And I want you to notice the pride here. Nehemiah says, should a man like me flee. And I see there's a note of pride, and that's a proper pride. That, that's a godly pride. That is a biblical pride. Nehemiah knows his place. He knows he is a man under authority. He knows he is a man who is the governor of Judah. He knows he has been sent by God to lead the rebuilding of the walls. He knows he is the leader. He knows that him fulfilling his mission is indispensable and inseparable to the completion of the project. And so he says, should a man like me run? You see, he understood that his place in life was not weakness. His place in life was not weakness. His place in life was to stand there right in the gap the very place that Jesus Christ called him to, and to hold his ground. He is saying, I'd rather die in a hail of bullets doing what Christ called me to do than to run and hide in a place I'm not supposed to be. I'd rather lose my life for Christ's sake than to go break God's law to save my life. That's powerful. And men, I got to tell you today, we all need to be this. Every man here needs to take this as his own. Can a man like me flee? 
Every man needs to know his calling before the Lord. And his calling is to take his place and to hold his ground. Now more than ever, we need people who are bold and who are strong. Who won't waver to the public criticism, the political correctness, the browbeating from all the secular intellectuals. To be whatever people want you to be, just so that you're not criticized or shamed because of your beliefs. Nehemiah would not be. He would not be intimidated. And that's what we need. Can a man like me flee? And then he shows humility and he says, could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? In other words, is it right for me to break the law of God to preserve my life? That's humility. That's placing yourself where you belong, which is under the word of God and under the rule of Christ. He says, I'll own my position that Christ has given me and I'll be responsible for it and I'll do exactly what I'm called to do in the place I'm called to do it. But here's the thing, I'm also a man who's under orders and I'm under Christ and I'm under His Word. Is that how you view yourself? He was willing to forego the refuge of an unauthorized place. Are you able to do that? You see, and on principle then, what he did was figure out the whole thing was a scam. Verse 12, I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He pieced it all together and he knew that this was all a sinister plot. Well, let's fast forward to the end of it all. I'm really beginning more and more when I see them to savor them, and that's Nehemiah's prayers. Look at verse 14. Remember, oh my God. Another one of those short prayers, huh? See, how's your prayer life? I don't, I don't pray much. Well, do you pray like Nehemiah? He prayed a lot. Just short prayers. Have you got time to have a short prayer? Strengthen my hands. Remember, oh my God. You're a prayer warrior if you could do that. Seriously. Remember, oh my God, and strengthen my hands. I think we can all do this. We can all be people of prayer. But look what he does here in view of all of this. And the the testimony of evil is absolutely overwhelming. And in view of that, and of all of the designs and aims of it all, he prays that God would do the work of remembering all of their evil against them because they had made it painfully clear that they are anti-Christ. We stand with that. We pray against Antichrist because we know what it is. It aims at nothing less than the destruction of the faith and of our lives. What does all this mean? God helped the rebuilding of the wall through these various ways as he delivered Nehemiah. But what is all of this about? And the first thing I would say when we reflect on the rebuilt walls is that they testify to the gospel. The rebuilt walls testify to the gospel. 
The rebuilt wall is a pivotal point in redemptive history because, first of all, it meant the identification of the people of God. The rebuilt walls provide a place for the people to galvanize behind those walls and to dwell in Jerusalem and to know their identity that was theirs by covenant. It was for the protection of the people of God that they may retreat behind those walls in order to have refuge and safety from hostile enemy attack. Those rebuilt walls were for the separation of the people of God. Those walls symbolized the consecration of that place of Jerusalem as a place of separation from the pagan nations all around them. And it said, we identify with the call of God, which is to live unto the Lord. But you know, those walls meant something else. Those walls were for preservation. Those walls were for the preservation of the people of God. So that the great prophecy of Jacob, which he gave while he was leaning upon his staff to his son Judah, would come true and be fulfilled. That the Shiloh would not depart from his line until he comes. You see, the whole point of those rebuilt walls was to provide a providential means unto the separating of the people of Judah that they would remain intact and incorrupted so that Christ the Messiah could become incarnate in the very tribal line that God had said he would. You see, at the end of the day, it's about the fulfillment of the promises of God. At the end of the day, those rebuilt walls were the means and the providential mechanism that God used to bring Christ. And so you can see this morning that the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem have an important application for you because without those rebuilt walls, there's no Christ, there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness of sins, and there's no eternal life. Because God had promised and prophesied to do it in a particular way. And that is through the lion of the tribe of Judah that could not depart until Shiloh came. And what that means for you this morning is grace. And in view of that grace, people of God, we're called upon to work. In view of that grace, people of God, we are called upon to work. I said we would take as our main point for this text, our main point for this text would be that we can perform work for God's glory through the help He provides. We can perform work to God's glory through the help which He provides. And that help is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said to each and every believer, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the calling in each and every believer is to do, it's to work. It is to work. And what we do our work in is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of the many things that means, it means this. In the fruitfulness of Christ's power. In the strength of his help. As Jesus said, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much 
fruit. And that means that every single thing that Jesus Christ calls his disciples to is meaningful work. And it's the station and the place in life where God has called you to cause the glory of the Lord to shine. And this text says you can do that even in a fallen world. As I look out upon this group this morning, I see all kinds of workers. I see mothers and housewives, electricians, dollars, office workers, trainers, shop workers, barbers, soldiers, analysts, programmers, professors, and forgive me for leaving somebody out this morning, but all kinds of work in all kinds of vocations in multiple and myriad stations, and all of it is ordained and appointed by God so that as you go forth under the blood of Christ, under His rule, under His Word, in the power of His Spirit, you go to amplify Christ and to make the glory of God shine. That means you all have sacred, wonderful, meaningful work. And that's what Nehemiah tells you when you take it up in the power of the Lord, in the name of Christ. Well, what it is for you is mission accomplished by the help of our God. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We uh, savor every bit of it, even old stories, because uh, we understand and discern that they're not from men, but they're from the Spirit of God. And he's placed them there that we would learn that we would magnify Christ, and that we would exult in Him. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless your people, empower them with your strength, and motivate them to go serve you, to glorify your name through the work of their hands. And Lord, they do so with boldness, knowing that the victory is theirs in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us for His sake. Amen.